In the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning. God created. God created. God created. The heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. Sunday for the outdoor baptism. Wasn't that great to see everybody following God in believers' baptism? We're so excited about how God has impacted people's lives here at Grace. And of course, that happens around the world. And, and people just with a desire to, to come to Christ and then to follow Him in believers' baptism. I, I don't know if you heard the story on the news, but uh, a young couple, a young American couple, uh, Jay Austin and his girlfriend Lauren, uh, took a year off from their jobs to uh, travel. Actually, Jay quit his job to take a year-long bike trip around the world. And that trip, uh, took, sadly, took a fatal turn near the Afghan border uh, where they were rammed by ISIS terrorists and then uh, killed, knife-stabbed to death. Um, actually... They had ignored the dangers about the area and the region because Jay specifically thought that evil was a make-believe concept. As a matter of fact, on their journey while in Morocco, here's what Jay wrote. He said, you watch the news and you read the papers and you're led to believe that the world is a big scary place. People, the narrative goes, are not to be trusted. People are bad. People are evil. People are axe murderers and monsters and worse. I don't buy it. Evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow humans holding values and beliefs and perspectives different than our own. It's easier to dismiss an opinion as abhorrent than strive to understand it. Interesting, he continues this way, badness exists, sure, but that's quite rare. By and large, humans are kind, self-interested sometimes, myopic sometimes, but kind, generous and wonderful and kind. No greater revelation has come from our journey than this. It's kind of interesting, we hear that and we think, how could they be so naive to think that there's no evil in the world, to dismiss warnings about danger, thinking, well, evil is a make-believe concept. And we think, we, we hear all that and say, wow, how naive. But as we judge that naive, we, all of us here, are probably naive to the fact that evil exists in every one of us. You see, we see evil out there. Yeah, it's out there. We underestimate the evil in our own mind. We are in a series called This Explains Everything, and it's covering Genesis 1, 2, and 3, first three chapters of Genesis. We've been through Genesis 1 and 2. Now we're on Genesis 3. Next Sunday we start a new series. That's kind of a flyover of the Old Testament. So right now, if you turn to Genesis 3, if you use one of the Bibles on the chair rack in front of you, it's page 3. All right, page three, that's where we're at. Genesis chapter three, beginning in verse one. And, and by the way, 
if you tend to hear this and you view this as myth, then if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, first I would invite you to, to listen to that because you know, we, we believe in science too and, and we love all that. And, and if you want even more than that, go back to a series a year ago called Making Sense of God. But anyway, let's start Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, God has said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in a day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord of God, Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This brings this is how Genesis starts. We're in the third, third chapter, and and I know when we think about this, a lot of us picture because we've seen all these paintings and stuff of a scantily clad couple with hair in just the right place, you know, to cover things up, and and then that there's a tree, and there's this this whole thing is implied that this has something to do with sex, which it doesn't. God had already invented sex. They had already been together. That's not what is going on here. So, well, what is it? Well, basically what's happening here is God has one rule in the garden. You can eat of all the trees. You can eat all the fruit. But this one tree, you can't. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's what we're going to find out in this chapter. That when we want to be like God in the sense of calling the shots of what's good and evil, we will end up ruining everything around us. And now let me explain that. So working through this entire chapter, basically, I'm going to just answer four quick questions because in this chapter is where the world broke. This explains why, you know, why the world can be so frustrating, why the world can be so beautiful yet so ugly, right? 
This is it. And so uh, the four questions are how it broke, why it broke, what it broke, and then we'll wrap with who can fix it. So, so how it broke. Well, there's a strategy of the evil one, and, and we're introduced to this character, Satan, who indwells this, this animal in the garden that we don't know a whole lot about. Satan is introduced to us later in the Bible, but he uses this animal, this serpent in the garden to, to talk to Eve, and then he has this plan in opposition to God that his plan is he wants to infect humanity, the world really, with the virus, and this virus is sin and rebellion against God. But in order to do that, he needs a willing partner to infect the world, and so he comes to Eve, and he deceives her, and, and his strategy on deceiving her is to cause her to doubt the goodness of God. So he comes to her, and in his interchange, what he's doing is he's causing Eve to doubt that God has her best interests at heart. He not only causes her to doubt that God has her best interests at heart, he also causes her to doubt God's judgment. So he comes and has a conversation, and she falls for it. And, and we might wonder, well, why is that? I mean, she knew, hey, there's this one tree. That, I mean, there's only one rule, right? You can eat of anything you want. One, and why is there one rule? We, we might ask, and maybe I'll get back to that. But, but why? maybe there's just one rule just so they can live knowing that there is a creator God over them who actually tells us what's right and wrong. But so why? You know, how did it break? Well, why did, why did she respond? Why did she fall for it? Because we, she then from Satan got this desire that she wanted to be like God. And when she took and ate of the fruit, in a sense, she was like God. They were like God in that, first of all, they experienced evil. We could say, well, well, how did they not know evil? God had already told them, don't do this, so that would be wrong to do it. So they got that concept. But they had never, before that first sin, they had never experienced sin. They would have never done sin. And so you don't know something fully unless you do it. Of course, God's exempt from that because he knows everything, so he doesn't have to experience something to know it. But in a sense, we do. And in another sense, this is wrapped up in this. Why is this taking of the fruit of the tree that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Well, wrapped up in this is when she takes this fruit, it's this knowledge, it's this her deciding what is good and what is evil on her own rather than listening to what God said was right or wrong. Because she's doing what's wrong. She's deciding, she's become convinced that this is a good thing. So the knowledge of good and evil wrapped up in that is our desire that we've all inherited from Adam and Eve, by the way. That we want to call the shots in our own life about what's good and what's evil. And when we do that, we put ourselves in the place of God, our creator, who has already told us what is good and what is evil. And what we think cannot displace that, but that happens in our lives all the time. So the next question is, that's how it broke, then why it broke. And... and and this is that God had to judge, because God is righteous and just, he had to judge 
the wrong that happened. So verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, so this is the judgment, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I'll explain that in a moment. And to the woman, so that was the serpent. Now to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So because of this sin, God issues judgments to the serpent, the woman, and the man in that order. So to the serpent, he says, and apparently this animal that Satan used in the garden was able to somehow be upright. Don't know if it had legs. Don't know if it just the way it could hold its posture, but it was upright. And he says, bam, down in the dust that you will dwell. That's the animal part. But then there's this curious thing about the seed of the woman bruising. Did you catch that? So there's going to be a conflict. Satan continues to attack humanity. But ultimately he's doomed, but that's not happening yet. And the conflict will continue, and it'll continue with the woman's offspring, God is saying. And then this unusual phrase, he shall bruise the woman's offspring, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And of course we know from the rest of scripture that this is all pointing forth to the eventual offspring of the woman who will be the Messiah, the God-man, Jesus Christ himself, born of a virgin several thousand years later. So this is all wrapped up into this. And that by the bruising of the head, meaning that Jesus will crush Satan's head in the sense of giving us a way to overpower this evil, that, this infection that he's infected the world with, but at the same time, his heel will be bruised. And so that's, that's all talking about the cross of Christ. So now the woman's judgment. Her judgment is that her family life, which is precious to her, is now infected with sin. First of all, childbearing now becomes more painful. Anybody in here ex experience the pain of childbearing? Just put your hands up. Right now, guys, put your hands down. <laughs> Emotional abuse during the event, that's, the, you know, that doesn't count. Pain during childbearing, right? Yeah. And, and so that's increased, but that's not all. There's another way that this has infected the woman's family. And there's a curious phrase there that we need to sort through. It says this. And the reason I bring this, why, why this is curious, why it's puzzling, it sounds puzzling, because this doesn't sound like a bad thing. Let's read it. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
Well, the woman's desire, natural desire for her husband, that's a really a positive thing. And so this doesn't sound right to us. But we actually get a clue on how to figure this out. Because this exact phrase is used in the next chapter, chapter 4, I believe it's in verse 17. When God is talking to Cain, and remember Cain murders his brother... When God is talking to Cain, he actually says this in Genesis, I'm sorry, 4, 7. The last half it says, sin, and it's the same phrase that's used in Genesis 3. Genesis 4, 7. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So sin, God's telling Cain, sin desires to master you, but you, you need to overcome that. And this helps us understand Genesis 3, 16, because what's happening here is he's saying the woman, her desire will be for her husband, meaning the woman's desire will be to lead her husband, and yet he will rule over you. And all of a sudden, these and, and the husband's rule, depending on how you use the word, is not necessarily a bad thing either because of his, the creation order and everything teaches us there's a headship principle. So what's going on here? What's going on is two bad things are happening as a result of the sin. A woman's desire will be to lead and control her husband, and then the husband's desire will be to not selflessly, lovingly lead, but his desire now will be, his tendency will be to dominate his wife in a wrong way, in response, or, or maybe not in response. So what's happened is, because of the fall, sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. Both have been corrupted because of the fall. And the punishment fits the crime. Since they both want to be like God, that's why they took of the fruit, so because they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil, each desire to be like God in the sense of ruling over the other. And so now there's conflict, and the battle of the sexes begins. So God's beautiful pattern for marriage is wrecked here, and the husband's loving leadership is easily twisted into harsh dominance. And the wife's uh, role as helper, as, as we talked about last time, is seen as weak and demeaning because we've forgotten the divine dignity of serving one another. And now, because we want to be like God, we want to get our own way. And so there's conflict in the marriage, in the way that we've just described. This explains the tension in households all over the world. And the beauty of God's original pattern for marriage is largely forgotten. So that's God dealing with the serpent, the woman, and now the man. He has the most to say to the man. And here he says, the ground is cursed because of the man. In there's actually this same word for the woman in pain uh, that he'll, he will eat of it, pr producing food. There was work before the fall, but now all of a sudden work is sweaty toil. Work is way more difficult. Um, now there's sweaty toil, failed crops, pests, diseases. 
you know, endless weeding. I mean, all that stuff, that's a result of the fall. I'm from out west. I grew up in New Mexico and southern Colorado. And out there, we have this, nobody goes barefoot out there. Because we have a bunch of weeds called sandburrs. Do you know what, a, who knows what a sandburr is? And then also something called a goat hay. Nobody knows that, but there's also another weed called. And these are weeds that kind of look like grass, but they are, are real prickly, and they stick to you. It hurts. And when you're pets, and by the way, not against pets. Pets, you know, pets are, are good. I don't consider cats pets, but pets are good in general. <laughs> but they'll, they'll get these these burrs in their fur and you have to cut it out of them but and then you step so nobody goes barefoot I'm just telling you I never go barefoot it's because I grew up out there but what I loved about Ohio is there were no sandburrs you didn't have these stickers in your yard you can walk around barefooted and it's okay that was the way it was in my house until about four years ago Four years ago, I'm, and I have kind of a, a long backyard, way in the back of my backyard, I noticed sandburrs. I didn't even know they had them in Ohio. I, I talked to David Stacy, who's a farmer. He didn't even know what a sandburr was. I was thinking, I have infected Ohio with an invasive species. I must have brought one out from Colorado. But they started growing. And so I'm like, I'm getting rid of these things. I am not going to let these things spread. So I don't know exactly what to do, but I know I have to kill the seeds, which are the burrs. So I go get a little torch from my garage, and I, I'm kidding you not. I go to each one, and I burn each little plant. You know, there's like 20 of them, and I burn each one. And, I, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about that. And then the next year, more sand burrs. And so then I go and buy a big torch that you hook up to a big propane tank. So I haul that out. And I burned them all off. And the next year, more sandburrs this year. And so then I'm realizing, okay, I'm burning the seeds and everything, but maybe I'm not killing the root. And they're spreading. And so I went down and got some poison. If you've ever seen my yard, you know we don't use a lot of poison. But, you know, I, I get poison because I'm desperate. Sandburrs, I don't care about any. If, and some of you, you're like, I've seen your yard, Kevin. There's dandelions. Yeah, I don't care about dandelions. I don't want these stickers in my yard. So I go get some weed stuff and I spray the weeds, which I was really disappointed in the weed killer, by the way, because like the next day I go out, nothing. You know, I'm like, wow, that's, that's not doing anything. The next day I go out, a tinge of yellow. I'm thinking, this is not the powerful. You know, four days later, they're a little yellow. I'm, I'm not impressed. They're still standing up. I'm not, I'm not thinking of this. So I get more poison and I do it again, trying to kill the roots. And now my plan is to go back, and I had to go fill up my tank to go burn them off again because I don't know if the seeds have been infected. You know, I don't know if, if they're still going to work. And if this doesn't work, next year I'm going to do a flyover napalm. <laughs> you know, my whole yard goes, and I just start all over because I do not want... You don't have to be a farmer to know that it's hard to provide for your family. It takes work, toil, effort. There's broken machinery, computer crashes, people that you have to deal with that are not so nice to deal with. It, it just has become hard. That is a result of the fall. That's what's happening. And by the way, the punishment fits the crime. Man has eaten what he should not have. And now even eating what he should eat is going to be difficult. 
Now all of a sudden, it's not so easy. His work has become laborious to put food on the table for his family. And by the way, God said that eating the fruit would produce death. And death comes. Death is introduced. Death is proclaimed by God. God says we will return to the ground from which we came. And because of that, we experience loss, illness, aging, all these issues that weren't there before. It's almost like all the good things from Genesis 1 and 2 are being played backwards in Genesis chapter 3. They don't disappear. They all just get marred. The good things we've given now have difficulty attached. Every area has been stained. God does not remove the blessing. There's still productive work. There's still childbearing. There's still marriage. There's still life itself. But now work is toil. Now marriage includes conflict. Now childbirth includes pain. And now life is just temporary. All that because of the fall. Genesis 3.20 continues. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Remembering God exists in Trinity. Man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And that brings us to the third question. What did it broke? The world was broken. Well, what did it break? What it broke? Well, first of all, it broke our relationship with nature. This explains everything. People keep asking, why, why, why would God allow a tsunami? Why a hurricane? Why the death and destruction that comes with earthquakes? Why the illness? Why the disease? I don't believe in no God that would allow that. Why, why, why? We're responsible for that, not God. We brought that into the world, not God. Our relationship with nature was broken in chapter 3. Now the ground does not cooperate with us. Now we have weeds to deal with. Now things become harder and more difficult, and the world becomes a more dangerous place because humans infected the world with sin. And it didn't only, it's not just what it broke was our relationship with nature, But also what it broke is our relationship with each other. This explains everything. By the way, God did not bring guilt and shame into the garden. Adam and Eve already experienced guilt and shame after taking the fruit before God approached them in the garden. They already knew, hey, I'm naked. Hey, all of a sudden they feel shame. Things have changed. Before God shows up, in the narrative. And this brings all the conflict in relationships because now their relationship with each other and by extension our relationship with other people, they, our relationships with people have been infected by sin as a re- result of what happened in Genesis 3. So relationship with nature, relationship with each other, and most, important, most importantly our relationship with God has been infected. Not only 
Not only did we pull away from God by doing what he said not to do, by rebelling, and then hiding ourselves from him, and I say ourselves as we're represented in Adam and Eve, not only did they pull from God by rebelling and then hiding, there's another thing that we often mislook, we often don't see, that we look over, and that is that actually God, in a sense, pulls himself from us. So he takes Adam and Eve, the couple, and he puts them out of the garden. Well, why did he do that? Because in the garden was this fellowship with God. It was a place for them to be with God, to meet God, to walk with God. And God is perfectly righteous and holy. But now they've become sinners. Now for justice to happen, they have to be judged. And so God takes them and God removes them in that sense, from his presence. And here's why that's key. Because a lot of times we feel like, well, because we rebelled against God and, and because we hid from him, all we have to do is come out of hiding and come back to God but it's, and, and say we're sorry. But it's actually a little more complicated than Actually, because that's a start, but because God removed us, God has to invite us back in. God has to make a way for that to happen because our relationship with God has been broken by us. That's what we need to catch. And if there is any solution to our situation, it can only be supplied by God himself. It can't just be us. Only God can fix it. And he'll fix it through the coming heir, Jesus Christ. That's what's, that's what's happening. The first sin, right after that happened, God asked humanity the first question. Did you catch what it was? Where are you? You ever wonder about that? Because God doesn't really need to ask them, where are they, right? Because God knows. God knows everything. Where are you? Well, we know that God just asked the question, where are you, in order to confront them about their sin. And so then that all plays out. And then he, he says, you know, he confronts them with their sin. But also in that, not only in that question do we hear God confronting us for our sin, but we also hear God wanting relationship. Now, where are you? Why aren't we together right now? Why aren't we walking together? Which in the Old Testament also implies kind of doing life together. He wants them back. And he wasn't, God wasn't bluffing about death. Death came but he didn't give up on humanity. And did you catch it? We're, and we're going to have our, our team come and lead in song in just a moment. But they're coming now. And uh, did you catch a part where he provided garments? Before they're cast out, God provides garments. And, and we don't know all the details to that, but it seems logically that's what happened. What happens there is all of a sudden for the first time Adam and Eve see death. There's been no death. Now, animal, an animal is slain, which is never pretty to see, and the skin of that animal is used to clothe them, to cover their sin, to cover their, their shame and their guilt, and or that's the way they feel. And really, it doesn't tie it together that way, but we know this is a, a precursor 
It's an event that teaches Adam and Eve the seriousness of sin and that it can't just be fixed so easily, that there's a cost to that. And this slain animal in the garden is the precursor to the entire Old Testament sacrificial system when God gets the nation Israel, where they had to kill innocent animals to temporarily cover their sin for a short time. And that whole sacrificial system all through the Old Testament pointed forward to the final, the culmination of all that, the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that could remove our sin forever and God's justice not be violated because our sin, our wrongs, would have been fully punished and fully paid for just by another, Jesus Christ himself, the only one who didn't have his own sins to pay for. And the fix is right there in the first three chapters of Genesis, hinted at at least, that through the seed of the woman, Satan's head would be crushed. His victory over humanity would come to an end. And there would be a way that we could be forgiven and be restored back in our relationship with God, even though there's nothing we can do to make that happen. God make, opens the door. He makes the way. And it becomes accredited to us. It becomes our way. We walk through that door when we respond to God's offer of forgiveness through Christ in repentance and faith. And he makes the offer. And then if we repent and put our trust in Christ and Christ alone, we can be forgiven. And there's nothing else that can fix the sin in our life that comes out of our own heart. We can't do good things to make up for it. Christ has to do it. The answer has to come from outside ourselves. And actually, there's something we do today. We did baptism last Sunday. Today, we're celebrating communion. And communion is something that Jesus gave, gave us to remember what Christ did for us as that final once-for-all sacrifice. 